Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Usually produced in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Victoria, but today produced in isolation from my home on unceded Wurundjeri country and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Ahern. Never let a crisis go to waste. That seems to be the agenda of the extractive industries and their cronies in Parliament. Both state and federal governments, Labor and Liberal, have used COVID-19 as a cover to rush through destructive projects, roll back protections, and hand over extraordinary amounts of public money to private interests. And this is happening internationally as well. Naomi Klein has dubbed it coronavirus capitalism, a pandemic shock doctrine. And in this pandemic shock, the Morrison federal government wants to roll back national environmental protections. The Northern Territory Labor government is spending millions in taxpayers' funds to subsidise and promote the fracking industry. And in Victoria, the Andrews government lifted the moratorium on onshore gas extraction and rolled over the disastrous regional forestry agreement. This week, we're looking at the fight to save Victoria's native forests and what the government and their logging agency are getting away with under the cover of the pandemic. Then later in the show, we pay respects to the late Jack Mundy and look for hope in the history of the Green Bands movement. But first up, Chris Scheringer on the fight for Victoria's native forests. My name's Chris Scheringer. I'm from Goongaroo Environment Centre, or Gecko. Thanks so much for joining us on the line for Earth Matters, Chris. Now, look, we've had you on the program a number of times over the last few months. Uh, last year, uh, you were on the program talking about the Victorian state government's announced phasing out of native forest logging. Um, that was some cautiously optimistic news. And then earlier in the year, you were back on the show talking with us about the devastating effects that the summer bushfires had um, on, on the forests in East Gippsland. So the bushfires have, have happened, but now Vic Forests, the state logging company, wants to come in and conduct what they're calling salvage logging. Can you tell us a bit about salvage logging and why Gecko opposes it? Uh, a lot of the scientific research and evidence says that salvage logging is one of the worst kinds of logging. It's extremely destructive and also can halt the recovery of fire-damaged forests for up to 100 years, possibly more. Um, yeah, after after the forests and wildlife have taken such a massive hit after the fires and really the fire has impacts on soil, it has impacts on the understory species and really like the fires um, have a huge impact on forests uh, but they they are, a lot of these areas are still living forests and will recover but then to bring heavy machinery in and start logging in those areas when they're already so badly impacted, it's just, it, it's going to have devastating consequences for the recovery. So soil that's already exposed and then putting heavy machinery into those areas it it really has 
terrible impacts on water quality as well. Um, so it's it's really, really concerning that after such a massive catastrophe, like an unprecedented event, something that we've never seen in our history, um, and the government are moving in to log these these really, really sensitive areas. It's It's really quite shocking. It's really shocking. And what is the state of the forests in East Gippsland post-fires? Some of the areas have been really badly impacted. Uh, Quark Forest, which was recently protected, was really one of the worst places um, in in terms of impact where, you know, there's areas of of rainforest, old-growth rainforest that has never burnt. Uh, which has just been completely wiped out. So you're seeing some areas where the, the impacts are really intense and then other areas where there's just been it, some light light fire fire that's moved through, not as intense and certainly sort of a patchwork of, of unburnt refuge and, and sort of lower severity stuff. So, yeah, I think the, given, given that the fire the fire extent was so was so massive it is a huge area that's been affected so now it really means that all of those unburnt areas are, are really important for for um threatened species recovery and also and also refuges for animals and wildlife um and the areas that have been impacted by the fire really need to be given the chance to recover what species are you most concerned about who will be affected by the salvage logging? You've already sort of talked about the effects on soil, which I think is something that we often don't consider. Mm. How about um, other plants and animals? Yeah, species like um, the greater glider, long-footed potteroo and large forest owls like the sooty owl and the powerful owl, they rely on the on hollow-bearing trees to survive and hollow-bearing trees, some are, quite, are actually quite resilient and can survive fire events, especially in, in terms of lower severity fire. So logging these areas, it's it's sort of if, if any wildlife happened to miraculously survive the fires uh, and are in these areas and they're then logged, then they will die. So species that are already under immense pressure and, and threat of extinction really have just further threatened by by salvage logging. And you've mentioned refuge. So what what's the uh, importance of refuge uh, habitats and how are they threatened by the salvage logging? Uh, so refuges within areas that, that have been burnt will be really important for, for species recovery and also especially plant species. So all of these sensitive areas and, and these sensitive and threatened plant species that have been taken out by the fires, those refuges will provide seed banks and, and opportunities for for those plants to recover. Um, and if those areas are salvaged, like that, that threatens those those important understory species as as well. So refuge is yeah, and incredibly important for the recovery of plant species, animal species, um, and that's inside the fire extent and also outside. I think that now it's really important to consider forests across Victoria, considering that really critical areas of threatened species habitat in the central highlands are still being logged and were being logged while the fires were still burning in East Gippsland, which is just shocking. 
And so there, there needs to be a statewide sort of reframing of forest protection where so much has been lost in East Gippsland. We have to think about those important critical populations in the Central Highlands, uh, also in Western Victoria, which are also still scheduled to be logged and being and currently being logged. Looking to the Central Highlands, your friends at Wildlife for the Central Highlands or WATCH um, have taken uh, Vic Forests to court, um, represented by Environmental Justice Australia. Mm. So what will this mean for Gecko's work in East Gippsland? And also you've sort of already mentioned how we need to look at the state of forests across the state of Victoria more generally. Mm. I think the, the court case is really... Uh, it's really groundbreaking in in that it's stopping logging in 30 areas of, of really important threatened species habitat, especially for the greater glider uh, and, and those forest owls. Um, I, I think it's just, it's just astonishing that c- citizens and volunteer organisations are having to take to essentially sue a government-owned logging company to actually protect these threatened species this should be the government the government should be stepping up and has to step up to protect these species and and quite frankly i think has a really terrible track record of of actually implementing protections for these species i mean these fires were catastrophic and the government really hasn't done anything in response to those fires to protect threatened species so uh the court case is really really important in holding in holding Vic Forest and the government to account to protect these species. Under the cover of COVID-19, the Victorian and federal governments signed off on a deal to roll over the regional forest agreements or RFAs in the state for another 10 years. Can you give us some background to the RFAs? So the the RFAs or um, the exemptions, as we call them, uh, state and federal agreements that give logging an exemption to federal environment laws, the EPBC Act. So they're legal agreements between governments that allow logging, the logging industry to not have to apply for exemptions from the EPBC Act. They just automatically get it. And they're the only really extractive industry that doesn't have to go through that process. So the agreements uh, were 20 years long. So they they had been signed originally 20 years ago and then just in late March now, they've been renewed for 10 years. Uh, and really those legal exemptions have resulted in um, the continued destruction of native forests under, under these agreements and really have been a disaster for, for threatened species and, and have fueled massive decline in biodiversity in Victoria. So we were definitely disappointed and frustrated that the government rolled over these agreements without considering the impacts of the bushfires and that it seems to just be business as usual despite this catastrophic event. How do you view the rollover of the RFAs for another 10 years in light of the Victorian government's announcement late last year to phase out native forest logging in the state? Mm. The agreements are 10-year agreements to now coincide with with the government's date uh, to end native forest logging, but there is a clause in, in these renewed RFAs that there is an opportunity to extend them beyond that point. So it's certainly not a definite 
uh, a definite thing. And I think as well, given the bushfires had such a huge impact that the government now actually needs to reassess those that, that 2030 end date and also consider bringing forward that transition and making money available now for workers to be able to transition into sustainable and long-term employment. For people listening who are concerned about the logging of our native forests and especially the salvage logging and the rollover of the RFAs in Victoria, what can they do to take action? So because before the RFAs were were rolled over, there was a review into the RFAs which thousands of Victorians participated in and, and wrote submissions. And because so many people wrote to them and and the Victorian government was able to see how much people care care about these forests. There were some some clauses that were that have been added to the regional forest agreements, which could result in better protections for threatened species. But we're very very cautious about these processes, and and really, uh, we're we're calling for complete transparency and independent science that goes into these processes, so that they actually result in better protections for threatened species. So we've got an we've got an email action going at the moment where you can email the Premier and Minister Symes and D'Ambrosio calling on them to make sure that these new clauses are done properly, that they actually result in protections for threatened species and we and we want the government to have a moratorium on logging until those can be complete because it doesn't make any sense to talk about review of threatened species and plan to implement better protections if you're logging threatened species habitat while while that process is ongoing. So we're calling for a ban on logging where all threatened species are found and we hope that people can join us. You can find it on our website. It's in our latest news page. And yeah, it would be great if people if people can get involved. Chris Scheringer from the Goongarra Environment Centre. Go to geco.org.au to find out more. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. Well, we've certainly got a fight on our hands. And when we need to fight, it's good to look back at our collective history. Dave Kieran long-time unionist and founding member of Earthworker, gives us a history of the working-class environment movement known as the Green Bands. Union members have a long campaign for fairer pay and conditions. But back in the 1970s, we also started campaigning to protect our green spaces, low-income housing in inner urban areas and even beloved historic buildings. Oh, that's a nice building, isn't it? Mm. It all started here in Melbourne in 1970 on a patch of public open space in Carlton which developers wanted to turn into a Kleenex factory and residents wanted to keep us parkland for their community. And the members of the Builders Labor Federation who showed solidarity with the residents by refusing to construct the factory. Stop carrying on like pork chops and start building my giant tissue factory. Who are you calling a pork chop? You're a pork chop. The developer even tried to bribe union leader Norm Gallagher. If you can see your way clear to not place a ban, we could all be running around in Rolls Royces. <laughs> Mate, it's not happening. Norm and his comrade Mick Lewis were arrested for their role in the black ban. In the van. In the van. Normie did three weeks jail and Mick did seven days. 
But eventually, everyday people triumphed. Norm and Mick were released, and the space was turned into public parkland, which they named the Norman Lindsay Gallagher Reserve. It was the mighty beginning of what became known as the Green Band. Unions in Melbourne and Sydney put the question to their rank-and-file members. Comrades, do you want to live in cities without parks? No. no, no trees? No, no, of course we don't. Public housing? No. And heritage buildings? No. Of course we don't. Do you agree here, here, to stand here. as one to fight capitalism in the raw? Yes. Oh, yes. 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 to say aye. Resolution in favour of working class environmentalism passed unanimously. After Melbourne's successful green ban on Gallagher's Park, a group of women in Sydney started their own campaign against developer A.V. Jennings, who wanted to destroy Kelly's Bush on the Harbour Foreshore. About what the unions did down in Melbourne. Now, we've got a bush too, you know, that needs saving, and we want your mates to help us out. The BLF not only banned work from that site, they also walked off the job on all the other AV general sites around the town, and it worked. Cool down! Righto, fellas, cool down, you heard? Let's go to the milk bar. I've been murdered, The government was so threatened by the power of this multi site solidarity, they brought in secondary boycott laws in 1977 to stop it from happening again. Meanwhile, back in Melbourne, when the council tried to redevelop the historic Queen Victoria market, the people yet again fought back. This idea is a total lemon. Things are going to go pear-shaped for sure. Then there was the time the Melbourne Lord Mayor tried to demolish the Regent Theatre, claiming it was unworthy of preservation. Let's squash and make a new thing. Oh, goody, let's. <laughs> again, the people got organised and union workers refused to demolish it. We like it. Get your dirty mitts off it. And speaking of dirty mitts, a little known fact is that lots of union organisers used to take a morning dip at the Melbourne City Baths. You're so, when the council tried to demolish yet another beloved historic building in Melbourne, the swimmers got organised yet again. Union workers and community groups also triumphed in saving the Windsor Hotel from demolition in 1976. Knock it down! No! And protected Melbourne's beloved botanical gardens from copping an all-night restaurant and car park. Please? Mate, I said no. And in other parts of the country, green bands helped save even more special places from development and demolition. And here's another little-known fact about the Green Bands. When a young German activist named Petra Kelly came to Sydney in the mid-1970s and saw the success of their environmentally-focused democratic political action, she returned to Germany with Jack Mundy, who was a key activist and leader of the New South Wales Builders' Labour's Federation. And before long, Petra introduced Green Bands activism there, adopting the name Green and going on to start up the German Green Party in 1979, which is thought to be the first ever Greens party in the world. So, as we know, from little things, big things grow. The Green Bands represents working people fighting for greater economic democracy, for the right to determine how their labour is used and the impact it has on the environment and the community. It was about everyday people coming together not just to improve their own working lives, but to change the world for the next generation. Audio there from a video produced for the Victorian Trade Hall Museum. Narrated by Dave Kieran with Trades Hall Council and the Victorian Trades Hall Choir. Jack Mundy, who became synonymous with the Green Bands, 
passed away earlier this month. So the last word goes to Jack, interviewed here on 3CR's City Limits program in 1999. I think, the, well, of course, at that stage, the unemployment position was not as bad as it is today, but there's always a conflict on the question of jobs and the environment. And in the main, the forces of reaction have been able to put forward a phony scenario saying you've got to choose, quote, jobs or the environment. Whereas, of course, we said we want both. We want jobs and the environment. We want socially useful jobs. Why should we build more and more high-rise buildings when there was something like 10 million square feet of unleaded office space? And yet you had 55,000 people waiting on the housing emissions list for housing emission homes. So we argued aggressively again that money should be diverted from useless high-rise office buildings, many of it standing empty for years, and moved over into areas of socially useful production of buildings that could house people. And a couple of examples, for example, in Woolloomooloo, which is looked upon as the oldest suburb in Australia, just down from the central business district in Sydney, they were going to extend the high-rise right down there and build millions of dollars of high-rise development. And we put a ban on that, and we argued that it should be for people to live in, that working-class people should not be forced 30, 40 miles out of Sydney. And Willamaloo is now is a classic example of what we did, because there, right in the heart of Sydney, you've got low-income people being able to have affordable, to use that word, housing, whereas uh, the old, the old working-class areas like Paddington and Glebe and Balmain have been well and truly gentrified. And where they were the working class areas, it's now certainly middle upper class have moved into those areas. So I think Woolloomooloo was an example of the argument that we were concerned to link social issues to what we're doing with our own labour. Whereas before there was a tendency to say, well, all the workers should be concerned about was the hip pocket was wages, wages and conditions. And we argued that in a modern society, uh, wider issues, quality of life issues, uh, should become a part of the union's concern. I wanted to ask, um, there was other social movements involved and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink ban that was... Well, I remember the blue ban on... The Macquarie on, University pink band. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue band down on Lake Pedder. <laughs> well, yeah, well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War, apartheid, support for our own, own blacks, for example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites the tent embassy was set up in Canberra with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders and the builders' labourers. But <clears throat> the other one happened in, in, uh, in the Macquarie University was that Jeremy Fisher 
was kicked out of the Rod Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' labourers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated, and they won the case. At the same time, Women's Social Liberation, Anne Curthoys and Elizabeth Jacker, were fighting for a Women's Social Liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on women's social liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and, and Jean Curthoy. So, yeah, we, we, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short, to traverse the whole lot. But, I mean, I think the important thing, of course it was an exciting time. It was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labourage Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together. Obviously, the rank and file and the community were very important in your campaigns and making alliances between the union and the community. And what kind of options do you, and prospects do you think there are in 1999 for those kind of, uh, of alliances to be built? I, th I think they're very numerous, the potential. They're very... The problems of society uh, are manifest, aren't they? I mean, global warming is there. Uh, it's fashionable at the turn of the century to talk about the new century. Well, now when we look at the, the fact of life, we've got four times as many people as we had in 1900. We've got more people in the world living in poverty now than the entire population 100 years ago. And yet you've got the enormous extremes on the other side, terrible riches, you know, all the things we know about. So, I mean, the, the need for community action linking with union action, the potential is unlimited. In memory of Jack Mundy and everyone who was involved in the Green Bands movement, let's get active in our workplaces, in the community, and fight for a world worth living in. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Ahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via your favourite podcasting service, why not subscribe and give us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, Care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.